Hello and welcome back to Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi everyone, you're back here with me, Jack, again. It's so nice to have you back. We always do that little bit at the beginning there where we say coolest places uh, on the planet. And today we're actually coming to you from even off planet because my guest today is the principal investigator on a project called the Antarctic Search for Meteorites. Pretty much what it says on the tin, it's a project which takes volunteers to go down to Antarctica and search for meteorites, essentially. Any kind of extraterrestrial body which lands on the whole entire continent. My guest today was lovely. I had so much fun chatting to him. He was super informative and super engaging. And I learned so much, like how many meteorites fall there, how you go about finding them, what happens to them once they're transported home, how you even go about transporting meteorites home from Antarctica, all kinds of stuff like that. Where where they come from, because you know, not all of them are from asteroids or deep space or whatever your preconceptions might be. That was really good. We talked about what meteorites are and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, He also has tons of extensive um, experience in the field. He's been down there many times searching for meteorites. So we talked about like his field work, highs and lows, the, uh, the, the, I suppose, horror of being in a deep, intense snowstorm and thinking that your tent is going to blow away any second to kind of the the wonder of maybe holding a meteorite in your hand that you've just found that's never been seen or touched by humans before. It's quite um, incredible. So yes, so I hope that you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed uh, making it. (laughs) There we go. Okay, Uh, without further ado, here we go. All right, everyone, please welcome to the stage my guest for today, James Carner. Hi, Jim. How's it going? Welcome to Polar Times. Going very well, Jack. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Our pleasure. We're excited to have you. So this is the first section of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker. It's where we get to know you, our guest. And as ever, my first question is always, who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? Um... I am a research professor at the University of Utah, and I came to the polar life or to work in Antarctica. As a graduate student in the early 2000s, I was a uh, planetary science major, and I started to study meteorites. And in the uh, planetary materials community, one of the biggest events or activities is the Antarctic search for meteorites, which has been going on for about 45 years, actually. The U.S. has had a team that long. Um, 
other countries have teams too, but the U.S. is kind of the longest one, uh, running one. And of course, I was in the U.S. and familiar that uh, scientists went to the Antarctic planetary scientists and searched for meteorites. And in 1994, I met Ralph Harvey, who was the PI on that grant. And I said, I would like to go hunt for meteorites. And he said, so does, so does everybody else. And all you have to do is write a letter to me on paper. And uh, that's your first test. If you can get through that, um, you know, then you will be considered for a team. And um, I think 10 years later in my graduate studies, I finally got around to writing that letter. It's, it's a great weed out thing because everybody wants to go to Antarctica or says they want to go. But until you write that letter, you're really committing yourself and saying, I could do this. I could leave my family and friends and the country for two months and, and work hard in the Antarctic and, and find meteorites. So I wrote that letter, I think in 2003, uh, I, 2004, I went on my first team uh, to Ansmet and uh, to Antarctica, fell in love with it, fell in love with finding meteorites. And a few years later, Ralph uh, needed a postdoc and I applied for that and got it. And now um, I'm the co-I on the Antarctic search for meteorites and I still love going to Antarctica and still love hunting meteorites. Awesome. So you came to the polar world more through your kind of meteorite geology, geophysics route rather than. So how did that, what was that like when you first found out that like, what did the poles ever appeal to you as a destination or was it just like, wow, that didn't know that was a, a choice, you know, of something. To yeah, do. I didn't know much about Antarctica before I applied for the program. And uh, I knew, well, very little. I knew there was some science going on. And of course, you know, you hear, I heard uh, tales of exploration there in the, you know, from the early 1900s. And of course, the journey to the South Pole and things by Scott and Amundsen. And so I kind of had a vague knowledge of what Antarctica was, but until I applied to uh, be on the ANSMET team, you know, after you get accepted, you're like ecstatic. And then you've got to do some research. And I don't even know if they had Wikipedia in 2004. Maybe they did. But <laughs> I remember reading all the stuff they had on the website and, and getting really excited. But you still I still I think I, I, I learn more and more every year I go and, and then you kind of look up more history and you can look up maps and uh, you can look up all the bases for all the countries uh, that go there. And um, so it, there's a, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot going on in Antarctica and I'm, I'm sure the Arctic also. Yeah, that certainly is. And that's the acronym for the Antarctic search for meteorites. But first, kind of let's strip it. I'm sure most people listening kind of know what a meteorite is, but no. maybe not really. So what is the difference between a meteorite and a terrestrial rock? How do you look at one? And yeah, so a meteorite is. is basically a rock from space. And, and most of the time, they're tiny pieces of asteroids. Uh, you know, the asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter in our solar system. And over the life of the solar system, these rocks in the asteroid belt can break up and they get sucked into certain gravity wells and resonances. And then they're sent on a trajectory 
that takes them close to the earth. And, and these are called near earth objects. And the earth's uh, telescopes are always tracking these near earth objects as, you know, the, as a danger to uh, earth if they, if they would come crashing down to earth. Well, meteorites are just small pieces of these near earth objects most of the time. And uh, so they get in caught in the gravity of earth and eventually spiral down, make it through our atmosphere and land on the earth. So they're a way to explore the solar system without going to another body on a sample return mission. And, and I should note that they're not just pieces of asteroids. We have meteorites from the moon and meteorites from Mars, uh, two planets that we regularly have uh, studied over the years. And so that's a great boon for science to get some kind of free samples that land on earth and we can recover them and, and study these other planetary bodies. So Antarctica is a weird place. It's known, it was discovered in the 60s that the ice on Antarctica, it's covered, I think Antarctica is covered by, you can think of it as just a continent, but it's covered with a thick blanket, a sheet of ice. And over the years, over millions of years, where Antarctica has been covered by ice, meteorites have been raining down on the surface. They're buried in the snow, buried in the glaciers, and they flow uh, with the glaciers. And in the middle of Antarctica, there's these trans-Antarctic mountains. The glaciers will stall there and ablate away and leave the meteorites right at the surface. So there's a concentration mechanism where all the meteorites are brought to a certain area. And we can go to these certain blue ice areas, they call, or places where old ice has been exposed at the surface the continent and, and find those meteorites. So meteorites are extraterrestrial rocks compared to regular terrestrial rocks. Now, Antarctica is mostly ice. Like I said, it's covered with ice, but there are mountaintops and nunataks, they're called, that poke through the ice. So there's there can be a lot of terrestrial rock at the surface. And that's where you have to, as a meteorite hunter, you have to quickly figure out uh, which rocks are meteorites and which rocks are just regular terrestrial uh, volcanic rocks or, or sandstones or things like that. And that's something we practice and uh, we certainly stress that our volunteer hunters can tell the difference between those rocks. So how, physically, how do you tell the difference if I was walking along? Yeah. Well, just by eye or do you need to like Yes, we, we do it mostly visual. It turns out that meteorites have some characteristics that are different from terrestrial rocks. So first, they're, they're often rounded and really smooth, like spherical shaped, but smooth on the outside. And I would say the corners of the rocks of meteorites are always kind of rounded off, kind of like a, um, if you think of a 1970s era car, compared to a 2020s era car, all the, all the uh, corners are rounded off and, and nice and aerodynamic and smooth. And that's what I kind of preach about meteorites is, is they will look different. They're often very smooth, rounded on the corners. They often have like a black fusion crust around them where they've come through the atmosphere and kind of have this baked on uh, crust where the outside of the meteorite has melted. That differs a little from terrestrial rocks. And the other way you approach it is you get to know the terrestrial rocks in the area. So we have a lot of uh, scientists that go on our trips that are familiar with 
uh, terrestrial rocks. They might be geologists, so they know the difference between a sandstone and a volcanic rock and a basalt and things like that. And so once you get out to the field or the area where we're going to hunt meteorites, it's not hard to just look at the thousands of terrestrial rocks and get a good catalog in your eye, uh, in your mind. And then once we get out onto the ice and into the moraines and things, uh, something different from the regular old thousands of rocks you're seeing on the earth, you can kind of differentiate that way. So there's a, there's a few ways to approach it. And there's also times where we're stumped and we say, you know, we're going to err on the side of caution. We're going to collect anything that we really don't know if it's a meteorite or not. So every year we have a few, you know, half a dozen to a dozen rocks where we've collected that with further examination at the labs, they say, these aren't meteorites, they're just terrestrial rocks. So, but they look like meteorites. Yeah, a few duds. <laughs> yeah, a few duds, <laughs> for yeah. sure. I mean, okay, so I think one of the only things that I maybe think I know about meteorites, but I could be wrong, is that there's, is there two kinds, like stony and iron meteorites? Is that, did I dredge that up from my memory correctly? No, um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're on the right track. So I guess they're, the, the original classification of meteorites was kind of stony meteorites, stony iron meteorites, and iron okay. meteorites. Since then, the classifications have, have kind of been expanded, but those meteorites are basically described the meteorites you can get from asteroids, stonies or stony irons or irons. And iron meteorites would represent like the core of an asteroid, uh, that differentiated and all the iron sunk to the core and stony irons would be something in the, uh, between the core and the crust of a planetary body where you've got some mixing of some iron metallic portion and some uh, stony portion, uh, mineral portion like olivine or, or pyroxene. Yeah, interesting. And then I guess the, what you say like is from Mars and the moon is just totally different again. I never really thought yeah. of it's coming from like, the moon but i guess there's no reason they shouldn't <laughs> yeah so in the i think in the in the late 70s you know we had some meteorites in the world's collection that were quite different from any of the other meteorites we had there was about six meteorites and people that were studying said hey these look a lot like earth rocks except we know they're meteorites some of them we saw fall to the earth and then we found them and some of them have fusion crust and everything else so we're pretty sure they're extraterrestrial rocks but they're really different from the other ones and they don't fit very well and you know a lot of people some people said hey these could be from mars it's a big planet you know its surface could be volcanic the, the meteorites were kind of volcanic meteorites like basalts and and basaltic cumulates and other people said, well, if, if that's the case, how could we get rocks from Mars and we don't have any meteorites from the moon? We don't have any rocks from the moon. I mean, we've been to the moon and certainly we, we haven't found any meteorites that look like these moon rocks that we've collected and taken home. But then an Antarctic meteorite from our program in 1980 or, or somewhere around there was the first lunar meteorite that we found. So we found a piece of the moon uh, and then it made it kind of a lot more plausible in a lot of people's minds that, hey, maybe we could have rocks from other big planetary bodies. And what happens is the same process where those bodies are struck by a rock or a meteorite, they blast off pieces. And then those pieces 
make it into our gravity well and, and come to earth. And I think in about 1983, another meteorite from our program, EET 79001, some really good scientists at NASA Johnson Space Center found glass in that meteorite. And inside the glass, they could measure gases. And those gases, the composition of those gases matched exactly what the landers on Mars, the Viking landers in the late 70s, measured on the surface of Mars. Uh, Viking went to Mars, landed, took some measurements of the Martian atmosphere. And this Martian atmosphere, the same Martian atmosphere was actually measured in this rock in Antarctica in the glassy portion. So it was pretty amazing. And it's, it's, it's really good proof that these rocks indeed come from Mars too. So meteorites wow. from Mars. <laughs> wow, there you go. I think maybe maybe you get the trophy for like the coolest study I've ever heard of. That's, yeah. that's insane. Wow. Yeah. wow. That must have been it, it's pretty exciting. You know, rocks from Mars and the moon are pretty rare. Mm -hmm. Uh we we don't find them very often. You know, one in every thousand meteorites might be from Mars or, or the moon. So, but when we find them, uh those those special samples, it's it's really fun. It's 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 pretty amazing to look at this piece of rock and hold it in the tongs and say, This is from the moon. You know? Yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah. So I was gonna ask why Antarctica is such a good place for meteorites, but you kind of answered that before. So it's just kind of all the ice is dragging it to the transantarctic mountains and i suppose it's just such a vast area uninterrupted by anything else and i guess the ice preserves them unlike you know yeah you're you're totally right so there is that uh, I, you know I, I went pretty quickly through that process but but those glaciers are carrying the ice and you, if you think of uh antarctica basically as an overturned bowl mm -hmm. the ice is just sliding off from the center towards the coast. And then that's where you see the ice going into the uh, sea as icebergs, right? So these glaciers are continually moving from the center of the continent to the periphery. And these transantarctic mountains kind of block one coast. And uh, that's where the glaciers run into those mountains, they're stalled, and then they just kind of deflate they lose, you know, by sublimation, they lose ice and by abrasion and the high winds, the ice just whittles away and then they leave the meteorites on the surface. So there is that concentration mechanism, but you're totally right. There is a preservation also because these meteorites have basically been frozen for maybe up to a million years. They're well-preserved. Meteorites, I think, you know, the, the average time, I'm not sure what the average time is, but they're thought to last on the surface of the earth 50 times longer than one that say dropped into Hull, England or right. <laughs> because, of the because of the rain and the weathering and everything else, they'll be gone in, you know, a thousand years or whatever. So uh, the preservation is great. And there's also the thing, you know, we find most of these meteorites on blue ice uh, and blue ice is just dense ice all the air has been squeezed out. That's why it looks blue. This blue ice is at the surface. So you have black rocks on this light blue surface and they're really easy to spot. So uh, you've got kind of those three things working for you. The concentration mechanism, the uh, preservation of Antarctic meteorites, and then the ease of, of finding them in Antarctica. 
Okay. And then is there any, so when you're finding them, is there, do you use any kind of remote sensing? Is there kind of, can you use like satellite imagery or anything if they're yeah. well, spot, or is it just hand and eye? <laughs> yeah. So um, originally when these first meteorites were found in the sixties, they, they saw this association or they noticed this association with the blue ice areas. And so they said, Hey, we're finding meteorites in these blue ice areas where the ice is being stalled and ablated away. You know, maybe that's a connection and, and that has proven to be a good connection. So our first step in the program, and, and this was in the eighties was to look for blue ice areas in Antarctica and in around the Transantarctic mountains. And in those days, there was no satellite imagery, but there was aerial photography from planes. The way they did it back then, they looked for these blue ice areas with uh, aerial photography. Now we look for blue ice areas. We can actually get satellite imagery, great satellite imagery. The U.S. and I'm sure other countries has satellite time where they're just taking great imagery and multispectral imagery of the surface of Antarctica. We can order that uh, imagery information, get great, you know, satellite views of the blue ice. And then from there, you basically just have to go out there and check to see if there's a meteorite concentration. There's been a lot of stuff proposed and, and unmanned aerial vehicles and things like that to find meteorites, but we're, we're not there yet. There's a lot of ways you could try, well, spectrally to find meteorites, but you'd really have to fine tune things. And, and people are working on that and we're welcome to ideas. But once we get into the field, boots on the ground, you're basically looking with your eye. The human eye-brain combo is amazingly quick and can take in a scene of thousands of different pieces and immediately almost pick out something that's different. We have done a lot of other stuff, metal detectors, things like that. Those, those work well in certain times. Uh, I remember one field member we had said, I'm going to take the metal detector out. And it was after just a little tiny, you know, like a half an inch of snow had fallen on a moraine. A moraine is where there's lots of terrestrial rocks on the side of a glacier. And he ended up finding several meteorites with the metal detector. And, and it was good in that situation. The problem again is that the human eye brain combo is much faster than a metal detector. Plus you have to program in some kind of diagnostics where it's going to beep when it hits a meteorite. Well, like we talked about earlier, you could, you could say, okay, if it contains iron nickel metal, if it's a stony, a stony iron or an iron, it'll beep. But then you're actually programming it to not beep on those other rocks that are maybe more rare and more important from the moon, from Mars. Uh, we're, we're trying to incorporate more technology. Uh, we're always open to that, but right now it's uh, using satellite imagery, multispectral imagery to identify those blue ice areas and then put boots on the ground and use the human eye brain combo to, to find the meteorites. Well, sure. If it ain't broke, then, you know, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah. And it means that people can keep going down there. I'm sure. You yeah. Can, well, um, you know, <laughs> there's some interesting things now, of course, uh, with unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs or whatever, you could think of, hey, you know, you could get a lot of initial scanning done. Say we've never been to a blue ice area. Could we get there with an unmanned aerial vehicle 
And could they make general sweep of the area and see if there's meteorites? Because some blue ice areas we've been to, no meteorites there, which is kind of a mystery, but um, it, it does happen. So if we could incorporate some technology to you know, not have to spend so much human time in an area that we don't like reconnaissance work and things like that. But I get, we'll, we'll see it's, it's evolving yearly for sure. So it sounds like Antarctica is almost kind of like a meteorite producing, it sounds like a conveyor belt that's just conveniently spitting them out. And I think I read on one, um, probably on the Antarctica website, that you found like 22,000 since the project began or something mad like that. Yes. Yeah. How many, how many do you usually find in a year? How many, yeah, so, how many um, do you know how many fall in a year? Is that... Uh, well that's that's another thing i should say so not only do we have the concentration of these meteorites that have fallen you know for millions of years they are flowing in the ice and concentrating but there also has to be a component of meteorites that have fallen recently let's just say within the last thousand years uh, geologically recent and they've just stayed at the surface because these blue ice areas are stable, we know, for long periods of times, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So if you have a meteorite that falls and breaks up on the ice, it could set there for, for a thousand years and, and, you know, it wouldn't have to flow in the glacier, but it would still be there nonetheless today. So there is that kind of direct infall, they call that. Now I kind of forgot the first part of that question. <laughs> what was oh, that? like how many do you usually find in a, in a year? Like oh, okay. So seasonally, we go out for about six weeks and we find anywhere from a, a really productive season would be over a thousand pieces of meteorite. But typically we're around hundreds, you know, 300, 500, 600, 700. It, a lot of it depends on how many working days we can get. The mm-hmm. weather can be notoriously bad out there on the plateau. Uh, if the winds pick up anywhere over about 18 miles per hour or, or 20 knots, it, it gets tough. It, it's super cold. The snow is blowing along the ice and, and you can't really see anything. And, and we really think it's it's not good for meteorite searching. We'll, we'll make more mistakes at that, at that point. Um, so some seasons you might have, we call them tent days when we really can't work. We're confined to the tent to just hang out. And some days you could have up to 40, 50% tent days. Some seasons it's 10%. So usually the more time searching for meteorites, the more meteorites you find. It depends on also the concentration at a site. A lot of these uh, sites we've worked years and years and we systematically go across them and search on snowmobile and search the moraines by foot but yeah i'd say we're we're happy when we're finding you know hundreds of meteorites in a season uh it gets to be a lot when you're collecting 50 or 60 samples a day there's not only do you have to find the meteorites, but with, then we have strict uh, kind of collection protocols where we have to be, you know, collect them sterilely in Teflon bags and Teflon tools and mark their GPS location. And so it's not just like we can just pluck them up and throw them in a bag. Uh, yeah. So so that takes some time. We take uh, high resolution GPS uh, data uh, from where they were found and things like that. So um, 
in a good day, you know, anything over 50, I always say is that's a good day for meteorite hunting. So. Okay, great. Now I'm going to probably slightly test you maybe, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. And if you can't answer these questions, then we'll edit it out. <laughs> okay. Do you know what, what, what's the oldest meteorite that's come from Antarctica or failing that? Like what's kind of the, you know, how old can yeah. they possibly be? Yeah. So the oldest, uh, if you're talking about at the, the oldest um, in uh, the sure. solar system, yeah. a lot of these asteroids are actually date from the beginning of the solar system. So they are, you know, bases, basically the first solids in the universe or not the universe, the, our solar system. And so that's like 4.56 billion years old. The first solids that came together and agglomerated to form uh, a decent sized rock. And uh, there's, we have, you know, lots of uh, meteorites that are really old. If you're thinking of how old a meteorite has been on earth, the terrestrial age, I think a couple samples have been a million years or older. So they can actually find out, okay, this rock came to earth a million years ago and has existed on the earth's surface for a million years. And that's a pretty long time. And just as a, as an aside, finding out that age of how old those meteorites have been on the earth has helped glaciologists and climate people to have locations to drill ice cores and find million year old ice and such mm. like that to uh, study past climates in Antarctica. And certainly the, the quest for old ice has been linked to kind of maybe the first idea is that they had really ice in certain areas because the meteorites were so old there too. So I'm not sure how old the oldest ice is in Antarctica that they've retrieved, but it's somewhere around a million years also. Wow, that's so interesting. I love how different bits of kind of polar science, you know, complement each other. And yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. All right. Okay. And how about the biggest meteorite that's ever come from Antarctica? Okay. So the biggest meteorite that come that has come from Antarctica, I think is, I'm going to say 400 and some pounds of an iron meteorite right called Derrick Peak. Now they found it in a lot of different pieces. So I think if you put all those pieces together, <laughs> so the pieces are the same. It broke up on contact with the ice or uh, maybe above the ice, but the, the pieces were scattered around. It was a giant iron meteorite called Derrick Peak and they find, they've found 50 or so pieces of that. When I first went to Antarctica, we landed in a place called uh, Cumulus Hills and I'd never found a meteorite before. This is our first day of uh, searching. And I think in about five minutes in the first search, we're on our snowmobiles. It's just four people. We're going slowly across the ice. And someone stops and waves us over, as is our protocol. And we all go over there. And it's a big chunk, about yay big, of, uh, I guess that's less than uh, American football, less than a rug, about half the size of a rugby ball, maybe. And it was a stony iron meteorite called a palisite, which is, they're pretty rare, but it was, uh, it was about that big. And then we, we, we proceeded to find about 20 pieces of this meteorite, the same meteorite, at this stony iron. And I think the biggest one we found was, you know, bigger than a rugby size. And and so that was kind of the biggest one I've been involved with finding. So 
That was your you first know, one. <laughs> yeah, our first one. It was pretty spectacular to find all those pieces like that. But compared to, you know, compared to meteor, the largest meteorites in the world, some of them, you know, uh, in the uh, American Museum of Natural History are irons that are six foot in dimension and weigh several tons. Um, and there's speculation that those meteorites in Antarctica, they're usually irons, the big ones, there's speculation that these probably never make it to the surface or they sink down into the ice and they just keep sinking. And in fact, uh, some British scientists that you might be familiar with have recently had a paper about iron meteorites in Antarctica sinking into the ice and, and being kind of a hidden reservoir below the surface of the ice, meaning they, they never get exposed at the surface. Mm. Okay, now for a logistical question. Okay. <laughs> how do you how do you transport all these meteorites, these say hundreds of meteorites back to the US? And then once they're there, where do they end up? Okay. Yeah. So we um in the field, we we have a, a strict protocol to keep them. We try not to touch them basically or or have any human contact with them, even though they've been in on earth and exposed to our atmosphere and, and everything else for thousands of years. Sometimes uh, we try not to anthropogenically uh, contaminate them. So we collect them with sterile tools. We put them in Teflon bags and then we store them basically outside at our camp in a nice, really good Pelican cooler that keeps them super cold and frozen basically uh, in the wild. So they're still frozen. Uh, they're taken by small aircraft back to McMurdo Station, the, the U.S. base on the Ross Sea there, and they are remain frozen in one of their coolers, one of their freezer rooms, until they are shipped back to the U.S. on a cargo ship, and they, are, they remain frozen still on that cargo ship, and then uh, they arrive in California from the Antarctic by ship. They're loaded onto a freezer truck, so they they keep frozen again all all the while in this cooler that we had out in the field, and they are shipped to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and then they're taken, put into another cooler, and eventually they will be characterized. So they're taken out one by one or in groups and dried off in sterile nitrogen. And then the, the initial characterization is done there where they split the rock and look at it and say, this looks like a, a chondrite meteorite. And then eventually these are all released in a newsletter by the Johnson Space Center and the Antarctic Curation of Meteorites there. And then they're available for all the world to study with just a small little proposal. Uh, you know, a new meteorite is announced and then scientists say, oh, I'd like to study this new meteorite that they found a couple of years ago here. And um, this is, uh, I'll just fill out this form and little proposal. And, and uh, so ANSMIT is really a, uh, a, a, a great resource for planetary scientists, especially those that study materials where those, those, those materials, those meteorites are available for study for anybody throughout the world, you know, very soon after we find them in Antarctica. Sure, sure. And then so what kind of, do you know, I suppose maybe it's only your own research as well, but what kind of science do they go on to inform? Like what questions can be answered by 
all of these rocks. Yeah, there's a broad range of questions that people study meteorites for. Um, certainly, well, let's just start out with uh, the surface of other planets or the composition of other planets like the moon and Mars and particularly Mars, like uh, the Martian meteorites add ground context, ground truth, we say, to what those rovers and what the orbiters are seeing right now. They are on the surface of Mars. They're they're orbiting Mars and they're saying, oh, you know, our, our spectrometers and things, it looks like this rock. It looks like this rock. And those meteorites actually give us ground truth. They say, oh, the spectra of this meteorite looks exactly like the spectra that they're taking from the can't remember the name of the new rover sojourner or whatever is taking you know their analysis looks like this mineral that we see in this rock so they provide ground truth to those people that are studying other surfaces of the planet same for the moon you know we have the apollo collection of rocks and the russians have some samples from the moon but now we have uh samples from the moon in places we never got to and we can see what those rocks look like and then i i would say that kind of the present study now, people are trying to figure out the origins of life. So uh, there's been a lot of, there is a lot of carbon and organic materials in early meteorites from the early solar system for 0.56 billion years ago. And they're looking at those and saying, what kind of processes were going on in meteorites? Could life have formed somewhere else and been transported to earth or been transported to other planets? And, you know, what are the, what are the organic signatures in these really old organic rich meteorite rocks? Sure. And I understand that how once they've reached earth, especially if they're in Antarctica, they'll be preserved in ice you know there's not it can't be preserved any better but then is not kind of the entry through the atmosphere so stressful that they will be different on earth to how they were in space do you is that, I, obviously you take that into context <laughs> that's part yeah, of no, that totally makes sense and and meteorites it's it's lucky this this fusion crust that i talked about before where basically the, the, the meteor is coming through the Earth's atmosphere and it basically burns the outer surface. Well, that outer surface is melted. That's what that crust is. It's a thin layer, like an eggshell on the meteorite where the, where the outer surface has been melted. But if you have a bigger specimen, the whole thing, the whole volume of it won't be melted. So the inside will the still inside be is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are, there are uh, several uh, materials called micrometeorites where they're, they've been totally melted. So their character has changed a little as they're coming through the atmosphere, but meteorites were lucky. We have that protective fusion crust that kind of protects the inside. So the inside we think is, is uh, mainly pretty pristine to what it was, when it was out there beyond our atmosphere and beyond the earth. Okay, perfect. That answers my question perfectly. <laughs> so I just ask because I'm, I work with plastics and that just changes all the time at the drop of a hat. So <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. And that's something, you know, especially with the organics and meteorites, they're always, you know, is this anthropogenic? Is there, mm. what is the signs of earth about these organics? Uh, can we really say these are extraterrestrial? So there's been a lot of, of studies uh, about, you know, how, how do we separate the different reservoirs contributing to this meteorite rock? Sure. And then do you ever get ones that are totally 
I mean, totally unexplained. That is just like, oh, it's not any of the three categories and it's not Mars and it's not the moon. Yeah. And we'll just put yeah. it in a big maybe pile to understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, there's there's some fascinating specimens in our collection. I would say that Antarctic meteorites have expanded the breadth of our collections and and now it's kind of into the lumping and splitting stage, you know, where people are saying, oh, these these three rocks are totally different from anything else. They might be from a different parent body or or all these rocks should be the same. The parent body could be just a little heterogeneous and things like that. But there are rocks, there are meteorites that are kind of unexplained, their parent body. And, you know, people, we just haven't found spectroscopically, we look out into the asteroid belt and we think we can figure out the composition of these asteroids and they don't really match some of the meteorites that we've found. So those are kind of unknown parent bodies. Now, recently we've been to some asteroids or close by, Dawn went to the asteroid four Vesta and Ceres. And, and now the Japanese have went to Hayabusa or the Hayabusa mission has gone to an asteroid. And even uh, just Osiris Rex, the US mission has collected a sample from the asteroid. So we're getting better matches between parent bodies and meteorites, parent bodies being the asteroids that these uh, meteorites came from, but there still are some weird stuff. And it's always fun to find, you know, meteorites, like some people have proposed that a certain class of meteorites, the instatite achondrites, could they be from Mercury? They, we've never been to Mercury, so we don't have, no a, we yeah. don't have a rock to say, oh, this is what a Mercury, Mercurian rock looks like. Uh, so, but people have proposed these are really weird and they look, you know, when the spectrometer or the orbiters go around Mercury and things like that, this is what the rocks could look like. So there's always that, but, um, it's always fun to find kind of rare specimens or, or you know, kind of unexplained ones and things like that. So. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's definitely half the fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about a little bit more about the ANSMET project itself, just because it struck me as quite unusual in that it's, kind of there's not many projects where you can volunteer and apply to go down to Antarctica to do science you know it's mostly academics I suppose <laughs> that's what I did with a PhD but you know there's not as many people it seems like you get quite a lot of people get to go so yeah do you like so they run every year and it's just you just go down in um in the summer Antarctic summer or Antarctic Antarctic summer so our our best time to go down when the when the winds have kind of calmed down coming off the Antarctic plateau is we we aim to be in the field like mid-December through the end of January so uh, we go down to McMurdo station and get some training uh, right after Thanksgiving well Thanksgiving in the U.S. the end of November and then, uh, like we said, we aim to be in the field in December through January. And those are kind of the calmest times for uh, Antarctic weather. And of course, there's 24-hour sunlight. So we're there in kind of the, the warmest time, the Antarctic summer. But it is getting colder. The sun is kind of drifting down the horizon in a circle. But that seems to be the best time to go for us to try to do our work. And 
Yeah, the volunteer thing. So there's there's several people that have leadership positions within the ANSMET grant and myself and, and my co-I, my co uh, Ralph Harvey, we'll, we usually go out there for part or, or whole of the season. We also have some mountaineers that have been with the program a long time. They're involved in not only keeping us safe on glaciers and in the camps and on the ice and during the snowmobile travel, uh, but they're also involved in the science too. They're finding the meteorites also. But ANSMED is kind of, I don't know if it's unique, but it might be different in a little way that we call for volunteers every year from the planetary science community mostly to go out and hunt meteorites with us. And, and most people are ecstatic. They really want to volunteer yeah. to do this. And, and most people will say meteoritics, I'll say, is a little different science that you don't really collect your own samples. You know, if you were a paleontologist and you studied dinosaur bones, you usually have a site that you go out and pioneer and do all the work and find the bones and then you study them. Meteorites are kind of weird. We have a lot of scientists studying meteorites, but not many meteor scientists collect the meteorites. You know, they, they don't find them. So this is a chance for scientists that study these materials to see how this process works kind of from start to finish. And uh, they're usually excited to go and, and volunteer their time. And they look at it as a service to the planetary science community. Also, it's a great opportunity for them to go to Antarctica and, and do this amazing field work where not a lot of people get to go to Antarctica for sure. <laughs> um, and we also try to open it up to other interested parties that have a legitimate reason to go down there. We've taken uh, artists and writers, um, you know, that have won the grant for Antarctica. We've taken some writers, some artists. We've taken some forest rangers. We've taken a school teacher. I think uh, we're, we're working on taking a, a journalist in the, in the upcoming seasons. Um, we take a lot of astronauts with with the not only the US program but with the ESA astronauts also they appreciate the um, likeness to well not the likeness but just the the working as a team in a small isolated environment i think it helps them with their training and they they think it's a worthwhile endeavor uh, for them too so it is it is a great opportunity for people to go along with us it's tough to get on a team we have a lot of people i probably get 50 letters from women and 50 from men each year and we have to craft that down to about you know uh four or five people so I, we always say write early and write often keep writing those letters keep telling us you're interested keep us telling us you know i'm I'm married, but I still have permission from my uh, significant other to, to yeah. go on this two month long expedition. So that's really fun that you, well, interesting that you still do, you still, so you still have to write a physical letter. It's not an email these days. It's still. Yeah, wow. that is, uh, I can't take credit for that. My um, colleague, Ralph Harvey, I think he came up with it. And it really is a, uh, a, a real test of your interest in ANSMED, because as you can imagine, everybody I meet that I tell that I go to Antarctica, they're like, oh, that's awesome. I would love to do that. You know, I should go. How do you, how do you get to go? And you say, 
Well, you just have to write a letter. Everybody has to write a letter. It doesn't matter if you're the dean of the university or, mm-hmm. or Joe Schmo worker or whatever. You know, you have to write that letter to apply. And um, I think it really does weed out a lot of people because once you put pen to paper, you really have to start thinking, can I do this? Do I want to spend two months in the cold, harsh weather? It is, it is trying out there. Uh, it's over the holidays, uh, so you're not going to be home for Christmas or New Year's. Could you be away and, and could your significant other, if you have kids, can they pick up the slack and, and take care of everything without you there? Because you're not going to be able to help one bit. So it gives people pause and, and then they write the letters. And I don't think anybody's ever regretted going to Antarctica, but um, it certainly is a, it's a big commitment and it's, it's not the easiest of, of jobs out there, I guess. No, not at all. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's super interesting. I, I love that though. You're totally right. In the, you know, in this day and age where you fire off 20, 30 emails a day without thinking. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. easier to write emails than it is paper letters, I think, for sure. Yeah. I think I'd re- get rejected from my handwriting alone. <laughs> you <laughs> would be able to read it. <laughs> well, I, uh, it has to be on paper. You don't have to handwrite it, but we do get a okay. lot of handwritten uh, letters, which is nice too, because you know, you're like, oh, it's kind of cool. I haven't gotten a handwritten letter for years. Yeah. That's oh, fun. It's so fun. All right. So you, you, so you've been part of this project for a while now. How many, how many times have you been down to Antarctica in the field? Yeah. So I've been down for 12 seasons and that is, that's a pretty good amount. Uh, but my predecessors and, and current are actually our mountaineer, John Scott, who's kind of getting into the retirement age. He's, he's 70 years old. He's been with the program for 40 years. So he has gone down to the ice like 40 seasons. It's pretty amazing. And, and Ralph Harvey, like I said, my colleague has been down to the ice 20 sometimes. So these are kind of long time Antarctic explorers, you know, they're, they're part of Korea. the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are definitely well-seasoned veterans and, mm-hmm. um, but I, but I am always amazed too. I, I'm, I'm quite happy with a dozen times. I, that's a good, that's a good number for me for sure. May I ask about your any fieldwork highlights you've had, or 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 lowlights if you're comfortable sharing? <laughs> ah, sure. Um, so also, you know, Antarctica it, it does seem like a lot of fun and games, and uh, well, maybe not games, but a lot of fun and people. Of course, it's an amazing experience. But there are times when it can be really tough out there, mentally tough, physically tough. It's cold. If you are a person that, you know, your feet get cold and you could have a miserable time in Antarctica being asked to get out there every day, start that snowmobile. It's, um, you know, it's, it's negative 10 degrees Celsius. It's, uh, it's cold and the wind is blowing. I, I would say the low lights of the Antarctic trip are when we get caught in storms. And, and these are basically wind storms where, you know, the, the winds are 20 miles an hour and, and greater, and they can be up to 40 miles per hour and, and, and such. And then they will rage for days on end. So you're just stuck in your tent for days on end. Now, one thing, if you said, okay, 
in your real life, we're just going to give you a week and you can just sit in your room and watch movies on your iPad and read books and take naps. You'd say, oh, that's awesome. I'll do that for sure. But out in the field, sometimes after a couple of days, it gets really boring and, and old and um, even a little scary sometimes. The last time we were in Antarctica, we have we have really good tents and really good equipment to protect us from the high winds. But we had set down our camp in the Dominion Range at a place called Davis Ward, Davis Nunatak's Mount Ward. And you put the tents in, you put the stakes in, and it takes a while for them to kind of drift in. The tents drift in, the stakes get sintered into the snow and things like that. Well, we just had had a couple days and then a big windstorm hit and the, and the winds were getting up to 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. And it's, it's tough on your psyche. You're in that tent and the tent mm. is blowing. You see that canvas wall going back and forth. It's noisy. Uh, it's just very unsettling. And this was the first time the because the tents weren't really centered in, uh, they hadn't, you know, settled very well yet. They, they don't have a, the tents, I should say, the tents don't have a floor for the purpose that if the tent blows away, you're just left on the ground. <laughs> you don't go with it. You don't go tumbling with it. And uh, this was the first time the Mountaineers kind of said, okay, let's um, just have your boots and your emergency cold weather gear, your big red parka and uh, things like that next to you in the sleeping bag because normally you'd hang stuff up on the top of the tent. But if the tent ever did blow away, you that stuff would go with it. So this time they said, keep it close to your body. And, you know, these winds are getting pretty high and things are getting a little strong. So that was kind of stressful. I guess that was that was maybe the scariest when the mountaineers said, let's, let's take some precautions. Yeah, that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> Usually they're saying, you know, oh, these tents are good for 120 miles an hour wind and, you know, mm. which is basically a hurricane. But this time they were saying, you know, let's be cautious here. If you get all your good weather clothing, if that tent blew away, you'd still be safe. You'd just get into your boots and gear and stuff like that. So th I guess that would be a low light. If you want a highlight, kind of this, uh, maybe it was the year before, we were looking for meteorites in a very dense moraine. And moraines are usually collections of terrestrial rock that, that the glacier has lugged along with, you know, it's, it's pulled these rocks from the surface and they accumulate on the sides of the glacier or maybe the ends of the glaciers, but they're literally thousands of terrestrial rocks. And there's often meteorites in those. So it's, it's very, um, tedious work to look through all these rocks to try to find meteorites. But the last time we were there, 2018-19, I spotted, uh, or the team spotted, we, we, we discovered meteorites together. <laughs> no one gets credit for finding a specific meteorite. But we, we saw this sample in the moraine, and it had a black glassy fusion crust. And that's a clue that it's a meteorite. And, and a black glassy crust is usually a clue to it's from some other body than an asteroid maybe. And we took, picked it up with the tongs, we turned it over and we immediately saw dark parts and white bits in there, mm -hmm. bright white bits. And we immediately knew um, from prior knowledge that this was actually a piece of the moon. And what we're seeing is if you look at the moon outside your uh, window tonight up in the sky, 
there will be white parts and dark parts. The, the, the dark parts that fill the craters are basalts, uh, they're volcanic rocks. The white parts are called anorthosite and, and they uh, were the kind of the first crust of the moon that has been battered since. And that's what we saw on this rock. It was like a mini picture of the, of the full moon uh, with white parts and dark parts. And that was really exciting. And we were, we were really excited. We hadn't found a lunar meteorite in Ansmet for several years. And we found about seven pieces that year. So that was pretty spectacular. I think that was kind of uh, one of my favorite moments in the past few years. I could take that home and show my daughter the picture and said, this is a piece of the moon. This is just like the moon, the dark parts and the white parts. So that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I can't even fathom even seeing it, let alone like being able to pick it up, I assume, with yeah. Tom or whatever. But yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Insane. Um, do you have something that you would like to kind of plug to the general public? You know, I think everybody around the world should support their sciences that are supported by the government. Um, you know, in, in the US, it's it's NASA that provides money for these searches and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, they have a budget, you know, it's public money. And, and so we, we appreciate that. And we want people to a, a support science and exploration and space and things like that. And um, I'm sure in, in Britain, it's the same thing. You, you, you know, you need money for these explorations and, uh, and you would just hope that the average person and, and a, a lot of the people that probably listen to this podcast are, our citizens that are interested in science and, and you encourage them to, you know, if their congressman or, or uh, their representative is, is thinking about cutting the uh, science budgets for countries that, that they don't and that they would support that. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you everyone so much for coming back and for listening. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can reach us via email. We have a Gmail. It's these are polar times at gmail.com. Once more, that email is these are polar times at gmail.com. Or you can tweet Apex at polar underscore research. We'd love to hear from you. Feedback, criticism, if it's constructive, and <laughs> questions, if you have any questions for polar scientists, all that kind of stuff. And don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on all of your podcast providers. So all that's left is for me to thank my guest, James Jim Carter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great yeah, question. Glass. I've learned so much. <laughs> Good. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.